Welcome to the RevRec Gals podcast, where two consultants with over 30 years combined experience share stories about the implementation and challenges of revenue recognition accounting. I'm Susan. And I'm Natasha. And And we we are are the the RevRec RevRec Gals. Gals. Today, we are going to talk about contract reviews and contract review checklists and other best practices when reviewing contracts because as we've already talked about it all starts with the contract and one of the things that we have even discovered about ourselves is that we learned revenue through reviewing contracts with that Susan talk to me a little bit about what you look for when you're reading a contract When I'm looking at a contract, there's always certain clauses that I immediately look for. So I'll kind of skim through most of it, but I'm going to look for the payment terms. I'm going to look for the delivery terms. I'm definitely going to look for any kind of warranty clause, whether it's called a warranty clause or not, if there are any breach clauses. I'll look at any descriptions of service and SLAs. If the product information is in the contract, I'll look at that. If there's a statement of work, reading through all the details of the statement of work as best I can without having to be super technical. Essentially, understanding the gist of the contract. And it's not only an individual contract that you have with a specific customer, but also the general contracts that are published online, like the EULA's end user license agreements that people click through or otherwise would approve. Taking a look at those to understand what's the baseline. And also are often incorporated into the legal paperwork. Like they're referred to in the order form or or whatever other contract documentation there is. That's true. We talked about that where the PO may reference or the quote will reference the standard terms and conditions. So you have to know that baseline mm-hmm. before you can even know where you're deviating from it. Oh, that's a good point. So it's almost like within an organization or a particular company, you have your standard terms, your standard templates. What's your standard warranty? What's your standard service level agreement? And being able to contextualize what you're reading to see what's non-standard, what's different. Yes, very much so. That's a great point because presumably the time and effort has been spent such that your revenue policies are in alignment with your standard contract. You already know how to account for it. You've already made all of your accounting conclusions. A standard contract will get you standard revenue recognition treatment. So it's really these deviations that we really have to think hard about. Yes, agreed. How about you? Are there other clauses you look for that I haven't thought about or I've forgotten about? (laughs) Well, you know, what's sort of top of mind for me recently. I was just talking with a client the other day about termination for convenience and rights of return. And I look for both of them individually, but I think often they can look similar and show up in different ways. People talk about opt-out clauses. Well, an opt-out clause could be a right of return. If it's, you know, the first 30 days, you can opt out at any time for a full refund. That's really kind of a return right. And then you could also see something that's, you know, at the end of the current 12-month subscription term, you can opt out of the renewal for a new term. And so an quote-unquote opt-out clause could actually mean two different things. So I look for them both individually, but sometimes there's crossover there too. And trying to understand 
what is the substance of this particular clause? That's one of the other ones I look at. Another one that at a high level, and I think it's sort of alluded to by the by the things that you look for, I look for hidden performance obligations. I think that's the most, it's one of the most risky things. Performance obligations can hide. That's why understanding that baseline can be so important because are they promising something more or different than is standard? Is there a premium warranty or premium support that they're paying for up and beyond the normal offering? Are there additional training services or custom development services that are hiding in an exhibit? And I think that's the one that I always get maybe a little nervous about. Most of the time, they're not there. (laughs) But you certainly don't want to run into that situation where it's hiding somewhere. You bring up a good point. A lot of this stuff can be in a paragraph you wouldn't expect it to be in. You could have delivery terms that are in your warranty clause, or you could have acceptance that actually has your delivery terms and your warranty in there. So you really have to go through the whole contract and understand what it is you're looking for so that you know when you see it. Yep. I also think that that highlights when you know that baseline. You know, every time I get a new client, the first three or four contracts take a little while. But then once, depending on how standardized they are, once you you sort of know what their clauses look like and what they mean, it goes so much quicker. And I always struggle a little bit because when I have a new client, I'm, I feel bad that I'm spending so much time on those first few contracts and they really don't get that full value. But then with my longer term clients that I work with, they get so much value because every time I look at a contract, I know what I'm looking for. I know it's standard. I have a, a good feel for the contract. And I think that's the benefit of having that standardized process with standardized templates is it really does go a lot faster. Yeah. The first thing I always do is I read their revenue policy and I take a look at their standard contracts because those two give you your baseline, let you understand what their business is in a general sense, because we usually aren't there long enough to really get in and truly understand the ins and outs of all the products. But we need to understand enough that we can know how the contract language impacts revenue recognition. Is the offering hardware? Is it software? Is it SaaS? Is it a combination? Those are the kinds of things we have to understand as we're reading these contracts. I always get a little tripped up too, because the professional services can be, in my mind, harder to identify sometimes because often those SOWs will be, they can be pretty detailed. And so understanding at what point does the standard hourly services become something more like custom development or where does that path cross over? And I think that's that's where you really work in partnership with your product and your professional services team to understand that. Sometimes as a consultant, it's harder to get a sense of that. And for me, it's where I really partner with my client contacts to, hey, does this feel like something different to you? Like, should we have a conversation with the other departments and and get a better sense of what what are they talking about here? Yeah. How are we going to track it, as you mentioned? Yeah. Is it truly hourly? Is it a milestone? And how important are those milestones? Are these milestones just sort of like a tracking mechanism? You know, one thing that came up the other day was this idea of reporting they had these milestones with reports that they weren't really that important to the contract. They were just sort of like check-in points, but it's hard to know that just based on what's written in the contract. And they'll sometimes have 
quarterly meetings yeah. or weekly meetings. Yes. And are those really performance deliverables mm-hmm. or is it just a part of managing and tracking the project? I find interesting, really reading the contract gets very interesting because there's just so much in there and you never know where you're going to find it. You never know what term, how the terms are going to be presented to you. Mm-hmm. That's where really for me, I'm often going back to my basic criteria of revenue to say what it, as you said, what is the essence of this paragraph saying? And what is the essence of this contract in determining how revenue should be recognized? Yeah, no, that's a great point. I find the devil is sometimes in the details because I'll have someone say, our contracts typically have opt-out clauses. Okay, well, again, let me get into the contract and see what does it actually say? Are we talking about termination for convenience? Are we talking about a right of return? You know, maybe they say there's an acceptance clause. Okay, what do we mean by acceptance clause? Because is it really an acceptance clause the way we think about it in revenue accounting? And so that's why I like to have conversations and get a general sense. But ultimately, you have to get your eyes on that contract to really understand what's going on from a contractual language, contractual obligation, and how we see it from a revenue accounting perspective. And the words used matter. Yes. We may provide you upgrades versus we shall provide you upgrades. Absolutely. One is more of a standard support. We'll provide you updates and upgrades as they become available, if they become available, versus if we shall is a commitment that you will be delivering something. And are you really committing to a future deliverable? So just even small things like that, you know, in a warranty clause, repair, replace, or refund. Repair and replace, it's fine. That's a standard warranty, but you add refund in there. Do you now actually have a right of return versus a warranty? Along the same lines, commercially reasonable versus best efforts. Yes. And and this is also where you know our legal friends can kind of help us navigate these things to understand how this would play out at the end of the day. Who, what are we really committing to? How did these specific words matter? Along these lines, we're reading the contract and now we have to document it somewhere. We have to document our findings because especially for us as consultants, we come and go, but employees do too, right? Employees come and go also. Even beyond that, the auditors always seem to want documentation. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) So we got to have something for them. Yes. Often we see contract review checklists. I've seen a wide range of these. What's one version of a contract review checklist you've seen or how do you usually approach those? I think there's sort of two different ways that companies will manage this. So one will be to have a non-standard tracker. So maybe an Excel spreadsheet where they have documented all the contracts that have non-standard terms that they've had to assess, or they may only have one that has the non-standard terms for which a revenue adjustment is required. There are others that will actually have a separate checklist for each contract. And also that depends on the volume of contracts. If you have someone with a high quantity of orders, you just can't feasibly go through every contract. Right. And so how do you determine which ones have non-standard terms? How do you determine which ones need to be a review? Sometimes there will be a an actual approval process. Like if they use Salesforce, it'll generate an automatic approval routing, or they'll have something like that. And then the checklist will actually be quite detailed to say, you know, do what are my delivery terms? What are my payment terms? What are my performance obligations? 
what essentially non-standard language do I have in there and how am I going to account for it? It's interesting because something you sort of alluded to is this difference between high volume companies and then lower volume, generally higher dollar value per contract companies and how your approach is different. Even within the same organization, you might have different customer segments that abide by those same concepts. Often with these higher volume customers, they also just don't have the time to negotiate and get internal approvals for every contract. So if they're high volume, they typically have a self-service model or a pretty darn close to self-service model where there isn't much non-standard language in there at all. And when there is, it routes for review. Right. Automatically. And it's probably only a few things that can get negotiated, right? Like a discount term or, you know, they've sort of chosen which items you can configure versus customize, right? Yeah. And then when you get to these lower volume, but higher dollar value deals, then sometimes the templates go out the window, you're using customer paper, there's no section that goes untouched. And I think that's where more attention is needed, not only because it's of a higher dollar value, so there's more materiality, but there is no clause that's safe. But that's also true with startups. Yes. Every contract is a negotiation. (laughs) And so you really got to get in there and look and review. That's true because the smaller the company, the less negotiation leverage they might have in coming up with a contract just starting out. Whereas there are certain big companies that say, hey, yeah, we'll spend a million dollars with you, but you have to use our templates. And sadly, those contracts are usually like 70 pages long. Oh, yeah. If you're lucky, they're only 70. Yeah. I mean, the hope would be that some of those exhibits and attachments can be standard, or at least maybe you could get redlined copies from the deal desk or operations team or legal team. And that way you can just review the differences rather than reviewing every single section. Yeah. Contract review happens kind of two ways. It happens before the contract is signed and then after the contract is signed. In theory, the ideal is revenue is involved upfront in the negotiations. Yes. In reality, a lot of companies, the revenue team just gets the paperwork and then has to figure it out. Yes. And so in my mind, the best practice is bringing the revenue team in early and partnering with them and legal understand the impact of the language on revenue and revenue recognition so that you streamline things much more. Absolutely. It definitely helps to partner with the deal desk, sales ops, legal team, depending on the company organization, how they structure it. Whoever is involved in that front end negotiation, not only partnering with them and being brought into those conversations, but empowering them with the information of what's okay and what's not okay. You don't have to ask me to go from 30 to 45 day payment terms. We're fine with that. But if you're going to go beyond that, or if you want to change the structure of the payment terms, let's talk. And even operationally, are we going from a standard SKU list or are we creating up new SKUs and new, you know, bundled products on the fly? Well, that's going to mess up our downstream processes. Can we invoice at that level? Can we recognize revenue at that level? That's where a lot of these conversations need to happen so that we can work together. What's okay? What can you empower them to approve on their own and when to bring you in? Yeah. Something I've seen companies do is create a, a matrix to say, here's our standard language, you know, like 30 day payment terms. And then here's the leeway you have that sales can approve it. 
maybe sales can approve up to 45 days. But then after that, these teams need to approve, you know, and to call out which clauses, you know, what language is acceptable as an alternative and what language requires approval and review. So a language library of here are the alternatives. Essentially, yeah. Those are especially helpful if I think you give legal those because you can work together to come up with it and then they can kind of be the gatekeeper still. But you sort of approve like, yep, we're good with that language. That makes sense to us. And that reduces the need for a lot of approval routing if you already have that in place. I always love these approval matrices because sales wants all the flexibility, right? But the higher you make them go for the approvals, the fewer times they're going to do that. Because of course, we have to support the business. And so we want them to sign the right deals and to get the right customers and offer flexibility when they need to. And so I remember sitting down with the CEO at one point saying, okay, so this is a big customer. I know we're asking you to do something non-standard, but like, tell me what that means. How is this non-standard issue a problem? And I said, well, we'd have to manually do everything. It's really time consuming. We're going to need another part-time person just to babysit this contract. And he said, okay. Okay. So it, that was good information for him because that's a tangible cost, but maybe it's still worth it. For a big enough deal, maybe it's worth it. And so having that approval matrix, hey, we're we're not here saying no. We just want to make sure it's worth it. So you might have to go to the CEO for that approval. You might have to go to the CFO. You might have to go to the head of you know North America sales. And so having those in place that kind of make sales really think about, is this level of flexibility worth it? We're only going to ask when we really need it. Can we bring this client in a different way? I think that's true overall is a lot of times I feel like sales looks at the revenue team as their nemesis because we're going to say no and we can't do this. But the reality is if you bring revenue in early, there are actually ways to make it work. Right. And there are things that sales is not going to think about that we can provide to make it work. I met with a client about a new pricing model that they wanted to use. And it was this really great creative way of trying to capture more value that their customers were experiencing and how do you align the payment structure with their value. And it was great. But when we were talking about it, I said, okay, this is great. Can you walk me through how we're actually going to calculate their bill? So conceptually, there was all these metrics and numbers and, you know, measurements of growth and all these really interesting factors that ultimately customers were bought in on. But how does this translate to a bill? And he wasn't able to answer that question. And ultimately, if we had signed a contract, well, no one would have been happy because we would have never been able to bill and collect on it. And so by bringing us in early, we don't have to get at the last minute and say no. By bringing us in early, I was able to collaborate with him saying, hey, love this metric. Now let's tie this to a billable line item. You know, And we were able to walk through that process so that when they sign the deal, when it goes through for approval, we can rubber stamp it, no problem. We're not going to delay it. And we can go ahead and invoice collect. Everyone's happy. That reminds me of a contract I got once where they were going to deliver some professional services. I think it was actually overtime services. And it was going to start upon the project starting. At the time, we were under 605. So 
you'd have to carve out for the support piece because they were a software company. And because I didn't know when it was going to start and I didn't know when it was going to end, we actually had to force an amendment to the contract to say that the service would begin the earlier of a certain delivery or a certain date. And that then gave me a point in time where I could then calculate how much the services would be. Oh, okay. So you were able to actually get involved and sign an amendment to help you get that revenue. To allow for revenue, right. Yeah. 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 No, that's a great point. I've definitely been in circumstances where a contract is signed or not signed. (laughs) And all of a sudden, everyone is surprised with the revenue results. Having to explain it after the fact doesn't help anyone. Because if their expectation was one thing that, oh, we would recognize all the revenue now, or we revenue would start this quarter instead of next quarter, that can lead to disappointment. You know, term, one of the things that comes to mind instantly is term-based licenses. You know, when you go to recognize that upfront revenue related to a term-based license, if it's a renewal, you can't recognize it as soon as you sign the contract the way you do, the way you, you think you might. You actually have to wait until your current term-based license is over. If they're trying to pull revenue in to this period by pushing a contract through, that might not actually get them the revenue results they were hoping for. And maybe they should go knock on the door of a different client or a different customer rather than trying to pull that one in from next quarter. That's why it helps to at least give some education around the company on what revenue requirements are. We've mentioned a few times partnering with legal, partnering with sales, having those conversations and letting them understand makes the whole process easier and leads to less surprises. Yes, that's a great point, sort of empowering them with the information so they know when to ask questions. They don't need to know the revenue policies. They don't need to memorize it. They need to know when to get us involved, when to ask the question, when to be proactive. Another area of that is when you're introducing new products and new pricing, because although those aren't contracts in and of themselves, there's an obligation that we're creating when we create those. And we need to be able to understand how we're going to recognize the revenue. Well, and make sure it's in alignment with the company's goals. Are are they trying to set up, you know, a certain revenue stream in a certain way? Well, let's make sure we're structuring it in a way that is consistent with the revenue result you want from the outset. Because once it's set, when it's once it's in the contract, we can't do much about it. But if we can help them come up with the pricing structure and contract structure, we can help them get to the revenue results that they want. Thanks for listening to this episode of the RevRec Gals podcast. Join us bi-weekly as we explore the practical application of ASC 606. We would love to hear from you. Please leave a review, comments, or topic suggestions on your favorite streaming service or check out our website at revratgals.com. The examples discussed are based on specific company dynamics. Check in with your auditors before making changes to your current processes. Specializing in revenue recognition may result in employment for life. Please consult your friends and family before pursuing this career.